Greetings Covenant Hope Church. This is our final sermon in our series through the Psalms this summer, book four of the Psalms. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 101. We'll be picking up in 101 because last summer Pastor Michael preached 99 and 100. So we'll skip those and we'll jump right into Psalm 101. The Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most widely read books in the world. It's a Christian classic. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book. It's been translated into 200 languages because it's so beloved. And it's been in print since 1678 when it was written by an Englishman from a prison cell. He wrote it from prison because he had been put there for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, the story is set. It's a, it's a tale of a man called Christian. And it's a story that is a picture of the Christian life. So the story John Bunyan wrote was of the Christian life and it's a journey of the pilgrim from the city of destruction to the city, uh, the celestial city, which is a picture of heaven. Christian, the main character, character leaves the city of destruction to travel uh, all the way along the road that leads to this celestial city. And he finds that the journey proves to be long and treacherous and dangerous and difficult. But Christian perseveres with the hope of reaching the city where he will meet the king. Psalm 101 uses the same kind of language of walking in a way or walking a path that leads either to destruction or to life with the king. So over the last several weeks, we've been studying these psalms, these kingship psalms I've referred to them as. Psalms 92 through 100 are called kingship psalms or royal psalms, and they reflected on the theme that the Lord is the king. But Psalm 101, Psalm 101, speaks in the voice of the human king of God's people, King David. King David addresses God with a pledge to walk in the way that is blameless and to lead God's people to live blamelessly as well. As the king, David was to model for the people devotion to God. He was called to serve as a supreme example of godliness to the people and to lead in such a way that promoted holiness amongst God's people. But before we consider King David's psalm and his pledge to the Lord, let's turn our hearts in prayer to the Lord and ask for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see marvelous things in your word. We pray that as we study this psalm, that you would speak through it by your spirit to us, and that you would help us as a result of reading this passage to live blamelessly before you as we follow our blameless King, King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you aren't already there, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 101 and follow along as I read it aloud. Psalm 101. 
a psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faith faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The main idea or the main point of this psalm is a call to follow the blameless king. Follow the blameless king. King David here is showing an example to his people in his pledge to lead a blameless life, fully devoted to the Lord. And he begins with himself in his own private life in verses 1 through 4, but also he wants to live a blameless life publicly among those under his rule in the kingdom of Israel. We see that in verses 5 through 8, and we'll look at each in turn. So the sermon will break up into two main points. Walk blamelessly in private and walk blamelessly in public. Walk blamelessly in private, which is found in verses 1 through 4, is the first point. Where does blamelessness begin? If you want to grow in godliness and integrity like I do, where do you start? I regularly feel frustrated about the ways that I'm not the kind of man that I want to be the kind of man I desire to be. I want to be blameless, but I so often find myself falling once again, guilty of the same sins, impatience, selfishness, pride. How can we change? And where should we begin in a desire to change? King David here lays out a pledge to the Lord to lead a blameless life. He's determined to try to live in a way that's pleasing to God, Look over the verses that I just read. Notice how many times the sentence starts with, I will, I will, I will. But here in verse 1, the beginning of the psalm, he speaks about singing and making music to the Lord. And that seems a little odd, a little out of place with the other things that he says. The rest of the psalm talks about pondering the way that is blameless, or not setting worthless things before his eyes, and hating the works of the wicked. Is David just throwing in singing for good measure at the beginning of the psalm? No, David starts where we all must start. As we strive for blamelessness, we must begin with the Lord. 
Blamelessness begins with a vertical orientation between us and God before it ever gets horizontal between us and other people, between us and one another. So King David begins with fixing his attention on the Lord. He's reorienting his heart by putting the Lord first, reflecting on the Lord's character, rejoicing in the Lord's covenant love and justice. If we want to grow in godliness, first we must fix our thoughts on God. Where else would be better to learn about how to be godly than looking at God himself and learning from him? Not only do we direct our eyes to the Lord, but we direct our hearts to him as well. David commits to singing praises and making music to the Lord. This is more than just a mere mental assent or agreement that God is steadfast in love and justice. He's not just saying God's loving and just, he's singing it. As we seek to lead a blameless life, we must be swept up by the truths of who God is and what he has done for us. We must delight in them. So let me ask you, are you ever at moments led to burst into song in praise of the Lord? Are you swept up in singing because of what God has done for you? Or maybe even perhaps quietly overwhelmed by the Lord's steadfast love. Does it ever catch you by surprise and you're reminded once again how great the Lord is, how steadfast his love is towards you, and that moves you to worship? Are you left in awe of his holiness and his justice? If not, then you haven't deeply understood those truths enough and you are short-circuiting your spiritual growth in holiness. But if that is the case for you, I want you to do one simple thing. Pray. Pray for God's strength to know more of his steadfast love. Alan Formoso led our Zoom group last Friday as we uh, enjoyed studying the passage from last week, but we spent time in prayer and Alan Formoso led our, our group in praying just that very thing for the church, for Covenant Hope and for our Zoom group. And we simply, he led us in copying Paul's prayer to the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 19. They say this, for this reason, this is Paul, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What does Paul want the Ephesians to be strengthened by the spirit to do? What, what is the goal that he wants? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
as we learn just that, the breadth and the height and length and depth of Christ's love, God's love for us in Jesus, we're filled with the fullness of God. That's where a blameless life begins. Delighting in the Lord, putting him first and foremost in our lives. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 2. King David commits to pondering the way that is blameless. Pondering is fixing your mind on something. Giving it your undivided attention. Working carefully through it. Considering it thoughtfully. What do you ponder, I wonder? What makes up your thought life? What do you invest your time in learning more about and understanding more deeply? Where do your thoughts go when you're unhurried and you're not busy and they just wander? Where do they turn? What do you carve out time to plan for and to strategize about? King David says he will give his attention to learning the way that is blameless. In other words, he's going to spend his time thinking about how to live a sinless life. Even as he ponders it, he recognizes his need for the Lord's guiding presence. And he says, oh, when will you come to me, Lord? It's almost like he knows I need the Lord for this. He prays, when will you come? But pondering the way that's blameless isn't enough. Just understanding right living is not the same as living rightly. So David goes on to commit to not only ponder the way, but to walk in it too. He says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Throughout the Bible, our lives are presented as a pathway or a road, a journey, just like in the Pilgrim's Progress, where the pilgrim is traveling this road to the celestial city. Christian, the man in the, the main character in the story is walking this road and the Bible presents our lives in a similar way as a, as a way that we walk. And so the way that we walk is the lifestyle that our lives are char characterized by. David commits for his walk to be characterized by integrity. Now integrity and blamelessness carry the same idea of being whole and uncompromised in pursuit of what is right. It's like how we use the word integrity when we talk about structural integrity. We talk about a building or a bridge having structural integrity. That means it's whole, it's complete, and that it won't bend or break under pressure. And that's where godliness is hardest, isn't it? Being uncompromised and wholly devoted. No doubt there are moments in our lives when knowing what the right thing to do is challenging. We need the Lord's wisdom and we need to think carefully about it. But more often than not, it's consistently doing what we know very well is right where the struggle is. King David commits to pondering what's right, but here we see that it's not just enough to, for it to be in our heads it must flow out from our hearts. He says, I will walk with integrity of heart. In 
scripture, in the Bible, the heart is the control center of our lives. It's not our heads that is the control center, it's our hearts. And this is true because you and I know all too well, we often know what we really should do, but we end up doing what we know we really ought not to do. That's because our lives are being led by something other than our brains. They're led by our hearts. Now, biblically speaking, our heart isn't the pump that pushes blood around our bodies and circulates blood through our veins. The heart is the inner person. It encompasses the spirit, the soul, the thoughts, the will, the desires, the emotions. The list could go on. In other words, the heart is the real you. And whatever rules your heart will direct the path of your life. David speaks about the heart again in verses 4 and 5. However, there he speaks of a perverse heart or an arrogant heart that leads to wickedness. Now, the Lord Jesus taught this very same principle about the heart and the control it has on our lives. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, The good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In order to live a blameless life, you have to begin by cultivating a blameless heart. Like King David, we do this by committing to putting God first in our lives, committing our hearts to Him first and foremost, worshipfully delighting in Him, like we saw in verse 1. We do it by meditating on His ways and being determined not just to study His ways, but to actually walk in them. Not just be hearers of the Word, but doers. And that all begins in the privacy of our own home. Look at the end of verse 2. He says he's going to do this within the privacy of his own house. Who we are at home reveals who we really are. Especially when no one else is watching us. When the doors are closed and the blinds are shut. That's the first place that David is determined to walk blamelessly. He knows that that is the most important place when no one else is watching who he is. Now, of course, David was the king, and so the house of David would also mean and would have effects on his whole kingdom. It's where he ruled and reigned from. Like we see in verse 7, that those won't dwell with him or in his house. But David knew his integrity had to begin within his own home and within his own heart. Living blamelessly involves purposefully pursuing integrity, as we've seen. But as we see in verses 3 and 4, it also involves actively avoiding evil. First, David says he will not set before his eyes anything that is worthless. Now, to set before one's eyes means more than to merely put something in front of you and look at it. Though, of course, it would include that. But here it's like saying, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase, 
Fix your eyes on the prize. It's to do with setting a goal, a target, something that you're striving for, something that you're desiring, a result or an outcome that you're pursuing. So this stands in stark contrast with verses 1 and 2 where David commits to fixing his eyes on the Lord and fixing his thoughts on God's ways. David's committing to not making worthless things his goal or aim in life. Whether that be looking to worthless idols like we saw in Psalm 97 a few weeks ago or anything else that would cause him to turn from the way that's blameless. So take some time and think about what pursuit might be leading you to take your eyes off of the pursuit of holiness in your life. Where are you tempted to compromise on living blamelessly? Because David would say that thing is worthless. It's unprofitable. It's good for nothing. And that thing could literally be anything, he said. He won't put anything worthless before his eyes. So maybe pursuit of popularity among your colleagues or non-Christian friends, leading you to do or say or act in ways that you know aren't blameless, laugh at jokes that you know aren't innocent. Or perhaps it's chasing recognition at school or in your job, which leads you to cutting corners to shading the truth, being dishonest with your work, cheating, maybe, or speaking poorly of others to make yourself look good. David says he he hates that kind of compromise. And he intends to be wholly devoted to the Lord. So he won't allow for the works of the wicked, those who fall away, to cling to him. By fall away, David's talking about swerving from the path, falling away from the way that is blameless, getting off course, making compromises, small perhaps at first, but still not blameless, with people all around pursuing pleasure or popularity. It's easy to get swept along in the currents of worthless worldliness to go along with the flood of the things that the world says are good and should be pursued. It takes a determined mindset to choose to hate those things when the whole world says that you should really love them. It's easy to convince yourself that a little worldliness is okay, as long as it doesn't get too bad. You won't give in to the worst of it, but if you give sin an inch, take a mile. It grabs onto you. Just like David says here, it clings to you. Sin is is sticky. It's like getting chewing gum in your hair. And the more you try to get it out, the more it sticks and the more you end up needing scissors to cut it out. King David pledges to avoid sin and worthlessness and evil at all costs. He's says he's going to hate it because the way of small compromises often turns into the path of outright evil. It turns to perversion. Look back at verse 4. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. 
David doesn't even want to know about evil. He wants to avoid it altogether. He's not interested in getting as close to the line between righteousness and unrighteousness or blameless and blameworthy as possible. He wants to run from the line, get as far away as possible. And so the, even the, some of the smallest choices that we set before us, the decisions that we make, they set us on a course with the greatest consequences. Minuscule compromises often are the first steps towards massive falls. And that's why David commits not only to walking in the way of the Lord, but to avoiding, at every cost, evil. Where are you tempted to make small compromises on living blamelessly? What areas of your life are you trying to walk the line between righteousness and rebellion? Maybe it is what you choose to set before your eyes on TV, literally, or things that you read or watch. How do you decide what you're going to expose yourself to? And how to guard yourself against stumbling into something that is guilty and blameworthy. How do you decide what you will watch? And do you need to reevaluate your standards after reading Psalm 101? Perhaps it isn't the things that you literally set before your eyes, but it is the goals that you're setting before your eyes. Are they worthy goals? Are you more determined to be accepted by people around you than you are to avoid sin? How determined are you to wage war against sin which is raging for your soul? The cost of leading a blameless life is high. At times it means gouging out eyes and cutting off hands, the Lord Jesus says. How are you avoiding compromise in your Christian life? Are you walking in the way of righteousness? Are you pressing forward, taking steps every day? Are you content with where you're at? You've stopped taking steps forward. Maybe you're just standing in the way. You're not walking anymore. And perhaps you've turned your eyes and you're looking at other ways around you. And they seem alluring. John Owen wrote a book about mortifying or killing sin in our lives. The book's called, uh, it's called The Mortification of Sin. In it, he spends the whole book encouraging the reader to kill sin. He says this, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing sin you. Living a blameless life that's pleasing to God requires daily putting sin to death. You can't stop putting sin to death. You can't take a break from putting sin to death. You have to be actively cultivating hatred in your heart towards sin and putting it to death. You must be killing sin or it will be killing you. King David, who wrote Psalm 101, he learned this truth all too well. 
He was not blameless in his private life, even though he pledged to be. Even though here sincerely he pledged to obey the Lord. Even David, the greatest king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, could not live up to these standards. It was here, within his own house, that his greatest betrayal took place. David fell hard, but it began with just a simple, small compromise, a small decision. Rather than going out to battle when all the kings went out, rather than leading his people out to battle as he had faithfully done so many times before, David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in his house. When all the men went out to battle, leaving their wives back in the city, David stayed and all the men went. He wandered out on the roof of his palace where he had a good view of the city and he set before his eyes Bathsheba. He saw her and he looked with longing in his heart, another man's wife. His heart wanted her and so he took her for himself. And when he found out that she was pregnant with his child, he had Uriah, her husband, killed in battle. Ultimately, King David's betrayal started the course of events that led to the downfall of the whole kingdom. But the failures of David and every king from his line afterwards were not proof that this ideal, the ideal of Psalm 101, was unattainable. Rather, they point to the future king, a son of David yet to be born, who would not only pledge to live a blameless life, but would actually be perfectly blameless. God the Father sent his son, born of Mary in the line of David. Jesus came, God the Son took on flesh and came in order to live a perfectly blameless life, a holy life, a life pleasing to the Father in the place of sinners, to do it for us on our behalf. And he came to die the death that sinners like you and I deserve. Jesus came willingly and went to the cross where God's wrath against sin was poured out on him. And he died in the place of sinners. But on the third day, Christ rose triumphant from the grave. In victory, the blameless one couldn't remain dead. And he rose so that anyone who would turn and trust in him, anyone who would look on him in faith and repentance could be blameless in God's sight, could receive the gift of being counted righteous before God. Jesus always walked with integrity of heart. Jesus knew nothing of evil, and yet he was treated like a sinner, so that sinners could be treated as though they were blameless. If you don't know this Jesus, you can know him today. Turn to him in faith. Trust in him. Turn from your sin. Repent and believe. This is the gospel message. This is the message of the whole Bible. It's the greatest news that the world has ever heard. That blameworthy people can be counted blameless because the blameless one died in their place. But brothers and sisters, though this gospel is good news for us as those who've fallen short, 
of God's standard, it's also good news for us as we aspire to live blameless lives now, trusting in Jesus. Because Christ's death and resurrection don't only set us free from the consequences of sin, but they set us free from sin's control, its rule and its reign over our hearts. Through faith we're united to Christ. We're united with him in his death, so we too died with him to sin. Sin no longer reigns over us. We're also united with him in his resurrection from the grave, that he's been raised to newness of life. Because of the gospel, as we trust in him, we receive new hearts that can and want to and will walk in his ways, walk blamelessly. Our perverse hearts of stone have been replaced by soft, pure hearts of flesh by the work of the Holy Spirit, which he's given us to guide us and direct us and lead us on the way of righteousness, the way of blamelessness. We aren't just counted blameless. Believers actually can and will become blameless. We've been set free from slavery to sin to be slaves to righteousness. And so Psalm 101 isn't merely an ideal standard that no one can keep but Christ. No, Christ fulfilled this standard so that anyone who trusted in him would aspire to and would be able to live blamelessly too. Having committed to walking blamelessly in private in verses 1 through 4, King David commits to leading his people blamelessly in public in verses 5 through 8. That's the second point. Walk blamelessly in public. The king was called to represent God's standards in how he conducted himself. He was to act like a living example of the Lord himself. But also, as the one that was ruling God's people, he was called to ensure that God's people walked according to God's word. He would model integrity personally, and he would promote it publicly. In the remaining verses of, of this psalm, David speaks as the head of the nation. He's the guardian of justice in the land. And we see King David's commitment to promote, to, to promote blameless living in two ways. First, by punishing wickedness, and secondly, by promoting faithfulness. We'll look at punishing wickedness first, and we see that in verses 5, 7, and 8. First, David commits to punishing wickedness. Just as David won't tolerate wickedness in his own house... He won't put up with it in his kingdom either. Look with me at verses 5 and 7. Look at the first few words of each line. Look at verse 5. Whoever slanders. And then the next line. Whoever has a haughty eye or a haughty look. Then look at verse 7. No one who practices deceit. And no one who utters lies. Whoever and no one communicates that David won't make any exceptions. 
David is committed to being consistent in judging wrongdoing. And look at verse 8, the final verse. It says, Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers. David's punishment of the wicked is comprehensive. He knows that sin spreads, and if his people have any hope of remaining faithful to the Lord, any and every instance of wickedness must be swiftly dealt with. Punishing wickedness is a way to help protect God's people, and so the king is committed to it. But let's consider the kinds of sin that David commits to punishing. Look back at verse 5 with me. The first sin he mentions is secret slander. David's not only interested in what we would consider the big sins, like murder and adultery and stealing. He even cares about seemingly small sins, like slander. Now remember, David cares because God cares. David is simply pledging to God to uphold God's standards that God had given to his people in the law. David had studied them and sought them out and made a copy of them. And God cares about the small things. God cares about the conversations that we have in the privacy of our own living rooms. Slander is when we say something about someone else which harms their reputation. Now it's, it's interesting that David is committing to punishing this kind of sin because if it's done in secret, like it says in verse 5, if it's done secretly, how would David know about it in order to punish it? Well, as we've probably all experienced, oftentimes words that are said in private spread faster than even public speeches around our communities. I wonder what characterizes your words when you're speaking about others when they're not there. Are you ever tempted, are you guilty of speaking poorly of others when you think no one else will hear or spread it? How do you talk with your co-workers about your boss when he's not around? Have you shared in a way about another brother or a sister that you know will make them look bad, will damage their and hurt their reputation? Sometimes we're tempted to slander, not to make someone else look bad particularly, but to make ourselves look very good, to boost our egos. Which connects with the second sin that David says he's, he's not going to tolerate. At the end of verse 5, he talks about the sin of pride. He mentions it by saying, having a haughty look and an arrogant heart. But that simply means being proud, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Hearts that are puffed up with pride tend to inflate the whole person. Puffed out chests, proud eyes, pompous words. Such things David won't endure. He won't tolerate them because pride is the beginning 
of virtually every sin that we commit. The Lord hates pride, it says in the Proverbs, and so David does too. C.S. Lewis wrote, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. What are you doing about pride in your life? Have you identified it? Here are a couple of ways that you can identify pride in yourself. How well do you serve? Proud people don't want to serve others, they want to be served. And they certainly don't want to do humble tasks of serving, like changing diapers, or washing dishes, or putting out chairs, or emptying dishwashers. Or, on the other hand, proud people are keen to serve in ways that others recognize. Rather than seeking to serve for the good of others, they're seeking a platform from which to be seen by others. They're simply serving themselves. How well do you listen versus how well you talk? Proud people interrupt others. They rarely ask questions because what could they learn from someone else? They have so much to offer. Proud people are poor listeners, but expert talkers. Pastor Michael has this quote posted in his cubicle in our office. It says, pride doesn't listen, pride knows. Isn't that so true? How often do you feel like you know and so you don't listen? I know I'm convicted whenever I read that. Alternatively, proud people might actually shy away from saying anything ever because they're afraid of getting it wrong and risk being thought of poorly by others. How do you handle disagreements? Proud people dismiss others who disagree with their point of view and they take disagreement very personally and they don't take time to really try to understand what the other person is trying to say. They never change their minds because they are never wrong and they aren't teachable. How quick are you to ask for forgiveness? Since proud people are never wrong, then why would they ever need to ask for forgiveness or confess doing anything wrong to others or even God? Especially, they wouldn't want to confess wrongdoing or ask for forgiveness from those who are below them, like their kids or other people's children, people who have been Christians far less than they have, and so they know so little about the Bible. How is your private prayer life? Proud people don't need to go to God in prayer for help, for wisdom, for strength, for guidance, because proud people got this. Or the prayers of the proud are filled with demands for God's blessing, far more than they are with delight in God's beauty. Because the proud think that they deserve God's blessing. They've forgotten the 
everything good that comes to God from to us from God is grace. Brothers and sisters, pride is the seed which sprouts into all kinds of sin in our lives. So we must be actively destroying pride. The best way to kill pride is by remembering the gospel. Remember the gospel as you seek to kill pride. The gospel tells us that God is all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, and I am not. I'm not always right. I don't always know. I can't always see. In fact, I'm often wrong, confused, and blinded by sin. The gospel tells me that I'm a sinner. I'm worse than I even know. I don't deserve God's blessing. I deserve God's judgment in hell. And so how could I think highly of myself? How could I expect other people to think highly of me when I think of myself that way? The way that the gospel tells me that I'm a sinner. But the gospel also tells me that God is astonishingly gracious. That God doesn't give me what I deserve. He gives me everything. He gives me all grace in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness of my sins, adoption into his family as a co-heir with Christ, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that strengthens and guides me. And he's given me direct access to him in prayer. With all of that, how could I not just be overcome with thankfulness and gratitude towards God? And how couldn't I forgive others? How could I be proud enough not to forgive others who sin against me when I recognize how much I've been forgiven? The gospel is like chemo to the cancer of sin. We need a daily course of this chemo to kill pride in my life. The third specific sin that David says he will punish are lies. We see that in verse 7. Again, he repeats another sin of the tongue. He's focusing on um, the, the falsehoods and deceit and deception. He won't allow those who deceive to dwell near him, he says. He's not going to tolerate treachery. The Lord is the God of all truth, and so those who would be his must be people of truth and people who speak truth. Are you a truth teller, or do you struggle with being honest? Are you tempted to think that telling half-truths is good enough? Do you pass off lying as simply exaggeration? The final picture that we see in verse 8 shows the king dispensing justice morning by morning against all the wicked in the land, cutting off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. That's the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. But how does this apply to us today? We don't go around destroying sinful people. We're called to love our enemies, to share the gospel with sinners, to forgive them. We don't have a city from which to cast out evildoers or cut them off. So how do we judge wickedness in the way that David is kind of describing here? Should we? 
Well, we don't do it exactly the way David does here, but the answer is yes. It's not like the nation of Israel did, because in the new covenant, God's people are his church. The city are us, the people of God's new covenant, the people of his kingdom. And we're called to judge one another. We call one another to keep following King Jesus. We help one another walk in the way that is blameless when we're tempted to slip off it. And when people stray, we remind them where those other paths lead to destruction. And finally, if someone in the church refuses to walk with us on the way that is blameless, we make a judgment as a church. Like David, we don't endure or tolerate sin. So together, we sorrowfully, yet soberly and seriously say, you aren't being faithful. You're not acting like a Christian. And you can't remain part of Christ's church because you aren't following Christ as king. And we do this because King Jesus told us to do it in Matthew 18. The judgment of the king in the Old Testament or even church discipline as we see it today are simply a foreshadow of the ultimate judgment that is to come. When all will be judged for what they have done. When everyone will be called to account for every careless word that they've spoken. Every slanderous saying, every lie, white or not. When God will weigh even the intentions of our hearts, not even our actions or words. If we were to stand on our own, we would all be found guilty, unfaithful and condemned. But for those who have turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus, we are in him counted as blameless. Because he was cut off at the cross so that we might be welcomed into the city of the Lord. The new Jerusalem that God has prepared for his people. Not only does the king commit to punish wickedness, he also commits to promoting faithfulness. Verse 6 tells us that the faithful and the blameless will be looked upon with favor by the king. While the king will actively avoid the wicked and their works, the faithful shall dwell with the king together. And those who walk in the way that's blameless, he says, shall minister before him, will minister to the king. In God's kingdom, justice is served, but also righteousness is rewarded. Those who walk in the way that, that is blameless will enjoy an intimate friendship and relationship with the king. And the trustworthy will serve as ministers to the Lord. He appoints people to serve him in promoting faithfulness. And the kinds of people that the Lord chooses to use are those who are determined to follow him in walking faithfully and blamelessly. That was true for King David in Israel, and it's even more true for King Jesus. Those who lead have a greater responsibility. We might not rule a kingdom like David and those that were in his courts, but there are other roles of leadership that God gives us, and those who are called to lead must exhibit the character of the king. 
That's why elders and pastors in the church are called to be models of godly character. And so if you are a man and you aspire to be an elder in the church, I want to encourage you to cultivate a blameless character. Strive to be like the Lord Jesus. Avoid evil and pursue good. Husbands, if you're called to imitate the king by laying down your life to promote the holiness and blamelessness of your wife. So do that joyfully. Imitate King Jesus in that way. And parents, you are called to raise up your children to follow the king and to walk blamelessly in his ways. Older men and women are called to teach and be models of good works to those that are younger than them. And every single church member is called to be a minister in the house of the Lord. Whether you became a Christian yesterday or three decades ago, you are called to serve the King by making disciples and helping others to walk in the way that's blameless as we follow our blameless King. King David pledged to be blameless in his private life, but also in his public affairs as king. But as we know, he failed, just as we have all failed to live blamelessly. But where he and we failed, King Jesus has triumphed. He lived a blameless life, and now he leads his people, those that he's ransomed with his blood, to live blamelessly too. And we follow him on the way that is blameless to the celestial city, to the city of the King, where we will be with him forever. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we follow our blameless King. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise. We sing your praises. We make music with our hearts to you. You are worthy of worship. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put you first in our lives. And we pray that through the gospel, through the good news that Christ the King came to die in the place of blameworthy people like us. And to rise again so that we might be raised with him and have newness of life. We pray that because of the gospel, by the power of the gospel, that we would live blamelessly as well. By the power of your spirit within us and for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.